we were eating Mexican food as kids until other people called it Mexican food. It was just food. So all the caldos, all the fideos, all the menudo, that was just like grandma's cooking, she's wilding out, it's Sunday. So when I think of the Hispanic Heritage Month, I think of, you know, San Antonio, I think of downtown, I think of the Riverwalk, and I also just think of the food and culture that was instilled in us at such a young age. I think of a lot of different things. I think of home primarily, and I think of um, growing into the cuisine that I cook now. I graduated high school in 2007 and started getting, got into kitchens when I was 18. Um, at that point for me, it was the only person that I knew of that did high-end Mexican cooking was Rick Bayless. You know, he was for myself too, someone I looked up to because he was literally the only chef that was doing Mexican food on in any like high network or platform where it was available. So yeah, I mean, for myself, when I got into cooking as well, I kind of didn't even really think about Mexican food on a high-end cuisine. I thought it was just, you know, just food from my country, from my motherland, and just something I ate every day. I didn't, I honestly never even thought in a million years I would have been cooking Mexican food. The one thing that I, that I have to understand when it comes to this hotel is I want to, I want to deliver food that, uh, that, that people could wrap their head around. So I, I never want to stray too far off in our areas where we serve Mexican food. So it's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, more of the crowd favorites. We're not going to go too far off script um, because, you know, this is like your introduction to Mexican food. Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to a special episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. To celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month, I have invited three chefs from Austin in a special face-to-face -face panel discussion. Chef Andre Natera from the Hotel Fairmont, Chef Rick Lopez from La Condesa, and Chef Edgar Rico from Nixta Tequeria. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have conversations with renowned culinary leaders from around the country, where I discover how their cultural identity shaped their creative process. You can listen to eight other episodes with guests having a Latino background on the website flavorsunknown.com. Episode 78 with Chef Eric Ramirez. Episode 75 with pastry chef Antonio Bashour. Episode 71 with pastry chef Philip Speer. Episode 69 with Chef Levin Wallace. Episode 68 with Chef Shamil Velasquez. Episode 66 with blogger and author Meli Martinez, episode 23 with celebrity chef Jose Garces, and episode 3 with chef Jonathan Zaragoza. In this episode 80, you will hear what Hispanic Heritage Month means for chefs Natera, Lopez, and Rico in Austin, about what kind of Mexican food they were exposed to growing up, how Mexican cuisine was perceived 
when they started their career in the hospitality industry and how they revisited their Mexican heritage after learning classic French culinary techniques. So we have three chefs from uh, Austin with us today. We have Chef Edgar Rico from Nixta Tequeria. Hi, how are you? Howdy, how are you? I'm good. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. Thanks for having us. It's a blast. Stoked to be here on Mexican Heritage Month. Absolutely. And then we have uh, Chef Rick Lopez from La Condesa. Hi, Rick. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for having us. We were previously introduced by Chef Drake Leonard. That's right. And from Houston. So it's good to finally meet you. Yes. Yeah. Drake is the connector. So we're finally connecting. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the show. And then finally, my friend, you know, Chef Andre Natera from the Fairmont Hotel in Austin. So Andre, you're a seasoned guest on my podcast. You have been here many times and you have as well a podcast on your own, you know, called the Random Pass. Not as good as yours. Oh, come on. So <laughs> welcome back to the show, Andre. It's good to be here with you and it's good to uh, be here with some other chefs who can talk food today. So Andre, thank you very much for hosting us at uh, the Garrison uh, Restaurant Private Room at the Fairmont. So can each of you tell us kind of the elevator speech mode, you know, <laughs> so your food concept and why we should come to your respective location. All right. So this is Edgar. So yeah, I own and operate a restaurant called Nixta Taqueria. We are a taqueria that nixtamalizes all our corn in-house, corn that comes from Oaxaca, Mexico, and then also locally as well. We essentially do flavors that are from around the globe, but the canvas for everything is corn. So corn tortillas only exclusively at the restaurant. And I think you should come to my restaurant because it's a different outside take on tacos, but still really, really tasty, good time. In a casual environment with some really good wine. This is Rick. I'm the chef at La Condesa in downtown Austin. I would say the old man on the block now. It's, it's a restaurant that's, I think, going to be 13. So we're coming into our teenage years. So we're going to have a little chip on our shoulder and ask questions of our mothers and fathers. But, you know, the, the, the main thing at La Condesa is the North Star is the entire country of Mexico. Any inspiration we can get from any region is advantageous to us at La Condesa. We can go to the Yucatan all the way up to North and still be able to play nicely with all the ingredients. And when we have our guests in the house, we want them to be able to explore, have some education and have fun with all the food. So if we're having fun with our guests, they'll tell us if we're doing a good enough job and that's what we want. We just wanna be open with our guests and be able to explore the cuisine. This is Andre. So I'm the chef at the Fairmont in Austin. So if you were coming to this hotel in particular, you'd probably think of Garrison Restaurant first and foremost, which is our signature restaurant on the first floor. But there's other restaurants within the hotel. There's Review, which is Italian. There's Fulton, which is our lobby bar. But when we're speaking about Mexican Heritage Month, we, on the seventh floor, have Rules and Regs, which is our Latin-inspired rooftop bar. We have a brunch there. We focus on Mexican dishes. That's the one area where I get to play and showcase a little bit more of my, my, my Hispanic heritage there with the food. Tomorrow starts like the heritage, Hispanic Heritage Month here in, you know, in the US. I would like to know from each of you, what does that mean? You know, what does it represent? Sure, yeah. Oh, it's a big question. This is Rick again. This, I circled the 15th on our calendar. One for myself, because you know, I'm Hispanic and I was, I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, mm -hmm. 78250, that's me right there. But one also for one of my other chefs that works with me. We've known each other for 13 years, maybe 14 years. He worked in San Antonio with me, grew up in the same city, 
and he got to grow up in a really concentrated area of Hispanics, right? Frank Harris is his name. He's my guy. He knows everything about me, the cuisine, the, what we do at La Condesa. And then he's also learned about that big city in San Antonio. So the Hispanic heritage to Frank is probably as big to me as it is to him, sharing maybe a little bit of what the cuisine was down there, which is you know, strongly Tex-Mex, you know, we can, we'll just say it, we'll just say it first thing out, Tex-Mex. And then also to it, it goes back into, I think what I was talking about with you earlier this morning, it's, you know, I didn't realize we were eating Mexican food as kids until other people called it Mexican food. It was just food. So all the caldos, all the fideos, all the menudo, that was just like grandma's cooking, she's wilding out, it's Sunday, bottom line. So when I think of the Hispanic Heritage Month, I think of, you know, San Antonio, I think of downtown, I think of the Riverwalk, and I also just think of the food and culture that was instilled in us. And then now coming into my 40s, going more strongly back to that. You know, the, the cuisine that we cook now at La Condesa doesn't directly, you know, correlate with what I think of Hispanic heritage, but there is something there underlying that's going to be a, a key base for that. So... I think of a lot of different things. I think of home primarily, and I think of growing into the cuisine that I cook now. For a lot of people, you know, this is about Tex-Mex because of the location. How is it, you know, for you guys, especially I'm thinking about, uh, you know, Rick and, and you, Edgar, is like to, to position like a, a kind of a traditional, authentic, you know, Mexican restaurant into, you know, a region which is really well known for Tex-Mex. Yeah, I mean, it's vast. I mean, the cuisine itself is vast and it's big. It's scary to me and I'm still learning on the job. You know, as, as far as I'm concerned, I really don't know enough about it to be, you know, any kind of lecturer or whatnot. But that is the good part, the great part about the Mexican cuisine. You keep learning and learning and learning. It's an onion. There's so many layers that are happening right there. You think you've got one mole down, bam, you read about another one. You're like, oh my gosh, how do we pronounce it? Where do we buy the ingredients? How do we buy the chilies? I always think of Tex-Mex because that's what I love, but I do think deeply of what our roots are as far as, you know, what our ancestors have provided for us. Mm -hmm. And when they came over to South Texas and provided us with, you know, the, those first, first bits of cuisine, it probably wasn't easy for them. It still isn't easy. And I think what we as chefs try to do now is try to, I don't know, be as honest as we can with what we know and what we can provide for education and, and just making it fun. That's the main thing. We still got to have fun too. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back because I want to hear from, um, you know, from Edgar as well, but you know, the onion, peeling the onion, I guess it's as well connected to all the complexity of Mexican cuisine and all the regional aspects. And any other things that I would like to come back later is like mole, because, you know, for people, mole is a very traditional sauce based with like cocoa, you know, cacao, you know, in there. But mole, in fact, means correct in Spanish sauce. So it could be, you can have like a mole negro, but you can have a mole blanco, a mole verde, and you know, and so on. So, uh, yeah. So going back to Heritage Month, you know, Edgar, what, what did that mean, you know, to you? So, yeah, Mexican Heritage Month to me, I mean, it encapsulates kind of a lot of things because for myself, I mean, I'm Mexican-American. I was born in California. West Coast kid. And I've always been raised uh, around being Mexican. My parents in the household, we always spoke Spanish. I didn't know anything outside of Mexican food really until I was probably like seven or eight when I went to a friend's house and like saw them eating pot roast and like lost my mind because I was like, whoa, this is so different than rice and beans. There's no white bread on the table. I mean, there's no tortillas on the table. There's white bread. I don't know. For myself, it's like just being really proud of that heritage because I know my 
parents definitely like instilled that in us to like not lose that identity of who we were. And then for myself as an adult now, like, especially in cooking, like cooking is completely like representative of who you are. So I kind of started like digging into myself when I wanted thinking about restaurant ideas of what I wanted to do. And I mean, the biggest thing when you think about the Mexican diet, I mean, corn is definitely at the forefront of it. And it started to become more of an exploration of like, okay, why is it that tacos taste so much better in Mexico? You start digging into it and then you look into it like the biggest thing is corn. I mean, yeah, I wanted to kind of dig back into that. And for myself, corn was that one thing that I kind of stuck to me. And I wanted to do as much research as I could for it before I opened this restaurant. And now that I run and operate it, it's really amazing to like see that now that like we're using products from Mexico. Like I've met the farmers who cultivate our corn like personally. So like having that connection with my country that, you know, my parents are from, like it's just unmatched and makes me really proud to be, you know, Mexican. This is Andre. You know, I, I think what it means to me is it's really the, this discussion right now, the fact that we're even having it where, you know, a couple of years back, I don't, I don't know if we'd have a discussion about, you know, some, you know, Hispanic chefs. I don't know if there was many Hispanic chefs in the conversation. When I started cooking, I, I can't think of one Hispanic chef that I, that I looked up to when I, when I started cooking. You know, the chefs that we were looking up to at the time were chefs Charlie Trotter and Daniel Balud and Emeril Lagasse or whatever, but there, there wasn't anyone really representing Mexican food. Maybe Rick Bayless was probably, probably at, the, at, the, at the front representing Mexican food or, or you know, he was probably representing Mexican food better than any, anyone else in the United States. But now, if you look at today, we have, his, not only do we have Hispanic chefs, but we have Mexican chefs being considered some of the best chefs in the world. And we're in the conversation that that is huge because the majority of my career early on, that wasn't a possibility. There wasn't restaurants at that level. So we went the route of Italian or French, basically European or continental cuisine, as we used to call it back then. That was at the forefront. And that's what we studied. And it was the, the Mexican restaurants at the time were Tex-Mex, you didn't know who the chef was. No one cared who the chef was. You knew who th what the dishes were. You knew that they had a great enchilada or you knew they had great moles or whatever the case may be. You went to this restaurant for a menudo, but you didn't go to that restaurant for the chef. And now, you know, fast forward to, to 2021, you go to try your Edgar's Tacos. You go to try, you know, Fed Means food at, at, at Suerte. You go and try uh, your food. Or, or my food or whatever, you, you go for the specific chef more so than you go for a specific dish. And the fact that we're even having this conversation, that's a huge source of pride for me right now. So you mentioned your experience and how you looked at, you know, Mexican food when you started, you know, cooking. And I'm guessing, not that I'm going to ask, you know, but everyone's age, but I'm guessing that there's probably like three different not generation, but three different age groups here around the table. So I'm curious if like Rick, you have kind of like the same feeling about, you know, what Andre mentioned that when you look back and same thing for you, uh, Edgar, but when you look back and when you started, you know, cooking, you know, how was like Mexican food considered? Yeah. Yeah. This is Rick again. From my point of reference, I just needed to go and gain experience. And for that, we needed to work in restaurants where you were cooking French cuisine. And, mm -hmm. and that's what it was for me. And then a little bit of pasta action too, but it was really 
I made the conscious and really big hard decision that my family was maybe not into at the time to go into French kitchens because I knew at that point that was the base and a point of reference that I needed to have under my belt in order to have what I have now, so to speak. So yeah, it was a little bit of growing up too, because I was so young when I first got into everything, 18, washing dishes up to now, you know, you just, you immerse yourself in this world, you go travel through your life and you figure out what you like, what you don't like. And then you, at the end of the day, come back to who you are. You know, I've been saying it a lot in our kitchen, no matter where you go, there you are. So if there's a problem, let's figure it out first within ourselves and we'll go, we'll figure it all out from there. So it was a lot of working under these great chefs who I'd read books about and, you know, studied upon and these big names to me, you know, the, the big one for me when I was going through it was of course, Thomas Keller and Daniel Boulud. And Daniel Boulud took a gamble on me. Thomas Keller declined me politely. And it was, that was the best letter I ever got. It's like, they just knew I was around. (laughs) So, you know, they, they took me on in the Dynex group and working in a kitchen where you basically know not the language, you basically know nothing about anything, really helped me find myself. They strip you down to a core of who you think you are. And at that point, when you think you're there, they strip it down again and you become this really good cook. You have this really good base of understanding and know-how and it's a great discipline, much like being a professional athlete. And I played a lot of soccer coming up, so I just put my mind into just go. But it, was, into- but it was not you. It was, it was like a certain image that someone projecting on, projected on you, you, correct? You know, when I look back on it now, I, I can really, I can say that those moments in time made me who I am. And we all survive these little moments and we all just, you know, become better people or versions of ourselves. That's the way I take it. And maybe I needed a little bit more direction and I needed some second and third chances. And I got that. So do you think, guys, that you need to go through that phase about like, you, you went making that, like a comparison with a professional athlete, which is like really, you know, almost forgetting about who you are as an individual, Mm -hmm. but getting like the basics, you know, getting like the techniques and whatever. And then later on, you know, then adding back the layer of your heritage and who you are as a person, but you need to have that in almost succession of uh, steps. I think it was a great balance because that's what essentially brought me back to the person I was always and forever. Mm -hmm. So you go through these moments, you find who you are, and then you're like, I've always been this one. And so we go back into cooking Mexican food and cooking your heritage, which my dad says a lot too. He's like, you're just cooking your heritage at this point. And he's not lying, you know, there's-, there's But no at the beginning, your dad was not really no. thinking that, you know, cuisine and <laughs> they, especially like Mexican food would be like the great like future for you. Yeah, right? I, I think at that point when you're so young and there's really not a whole lot of direction other than I'm gonna go into kitchens, maybe the parents at that point are like, what have we done wrong? You know, (laughs) but I'm making up for it every single day. So that's, it's just the thing, right? But I think at the end of the day too, they saw the discipline that was being instilled in me by somebody other than a soccer coach or themselves. And they just saw a different person. I was a thousand percent immersed in everything. I would wake up talking about terrines to my wife and she was like, hello. And I was like, yes, we are talking terrines at 6am. I'm about to go make three of them. So I, I think that's the that's me. That was just me coming up. You, I, I had a chef tell me one time I was on Entremet and it was probably my second month there. So it was a, a very fast progression in that type of kitchen. And that was just cooking vegetables for the meat guy, essentially. Nobody at night to work. So I work doubles all the time. 
which is very hard nowadays, you know, long days. <laughs> but I remember cooking vegetables at 6 p.m. and it was already, I don't know, eight, 12 hours in, who knows? But the chef just told me from across the pass, he's like, be the vegetable chef. Nothing else matters. Be the vegetable. We, we, we own that. Yeah. Owned it. And uh -huh. then from that point on, I was everything I did in that kitchen. So yeah, but Mexican food was like really far. At Mexican time, food was really far, but also really close, you know, because for family meals, if, if the prep team ever let me, these are guys all from Mexico, from Puebla. If they ever let me in, I would make some salsa mm -hmm. and I would grind it by hand on their little mocajete. But that was as, that was as close as we got in the kitchen. But you know, stripping, shipping myself down into that part. That's of... another question here for me <laughs> later, but it's about okay. talking about the French restaurant, but the people cooking in the kitchen are Mexican. So it's the, the whole situation of a lot of the, the workforce, you know, in the hospitality business here in the US are Latinos. Yeah. So that was always the draw too. So it, it everything stayed close to home as I was going yeah. through those yeah. trainings. And... So Edgar, going back to the question is when you started, because you're probably the, like the youngest uh, here. So, you know, how was regarded like Mexican cuisine? Because you, probably when you started, there was already some chefs that were representing yeah, kind of I like mean, authentic Mexican. Yes cuisine. and no. I mean, I graduated high school in 2007 and started getting got into kitchens and when I was 18. So yeah, 2007, it was still kind of, I mean, at that point, Thomas Keller was still, in my eyes, the god of cooking. You were starting to hear a buzz about Enrique Olvera, but nothing crazy. He didn't really get on the map until probably like 2010, 2011-ish. At that point for me, it was the only person that I knew of that did high-end Mexican cooking was Rick Bayless. You know, he was for myself too, someone I looked up to because he was literally the only chef that was doing Mexican food on in any like high network or platform where it was available. So yeah, I mean, for myself, when I got into cooking as well, I kind of didn't even really think about Mexican food on a high-end cuisine. I thought it was just, you know, just food from my country, from my motherland and just something I ate every day. I didn't, I honestly never even thought in a million years I would have been cooking Mexican food. So when I went into culinary school at 18, went to New York to the CIA and classically trained French, everything you learn there from top to bottom is pretty much like classically French training. There is some variance, you know, you have cuisines of Asia, you have cuisines of Mediterranean, stuff like that. But at the core of it, it's French training. Like there was never a class, at least in my eyes, where we ever we're doing like, you know, making moles or like nixtamalizing tortillas, like none of that. I'm sure now, especially if we go to the CIA in San Antonio, that's probably happening now because it's starting to finally get, you know, it's it's due and like respects. But yeah, for myself, I wanted to learn everything but Mexican food. So I went in, my first kitchen I ever worked at were for these chefs named John Shook and Vinito Tolo. They were at the time just kind of starting buzzing in the, around the LA scene. They had a restaurant called Animal at the time. And I remember going there as an intern to eat there and was just floored by what they were doing. It was the first time I'd ever been to a restaurant that had like nice food and great wine list, but they were also blaring hip hop. And it was at that point that I was like, like the changing of the guard has changed in a minute. Like I've had every restaurant I ever walked into, I always kind of felt like especially if it was a nice restaurant, kind of like I didn't belong or it was like kind of stuffy. 
but it, like walking into there, I was like, whoa, this is so different. And like the food they were serving too, they were serving bone marrow, they're serving oxtail, they were serving pigtails. And I was just blown away by that. So I was like, I gotta work for these guys. I gotta figure out the sauce of this recipe because there's magic happening in this dining room. So yeah, I went to go work for them at their second concept. It was a concept called uh, Son of a Gun, which is a seafood restaurant. Kind of learned my chops there. And then from there, went on to work for another chef named Bluter Lefebvre, which is like Michelin starred, fine dining restaurant, like 12 seats, menu changes every day. And you're just getting it. As he would say, you're, you're being built up and torn down on the daily. I mean, especially from like a really, really French, French, fresh chef, French chef. And it proceeded really throughout my career until I decided to open my own restaurant that I was like, okay, now it's time to do Mexican food. So I had never worked at a restaurant that was Mexican prior to, I'd only worked at other concepts. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was when the time came, like, I don't know, you start kind of doing that soul searching and like, is something about tacos for me that just stuck. Like it was something that was just a part of my life and something I ate as a, as a fan and loved. So I think it just made natural sense when I wanted to do something that was like approachable and like, like something that everyone can eat. And what is that? I mean, a taco, I feel like is that thing that is universally known, at least in the U S and who doesn't love a taco. So. Let's continue with you. You know, Edgar, you've been like classically trained, you know, French cuisine. And then you decided to open your restaurants, which is going to be, or you're working on the concept, let's say, you know, being like a Mexican. What do you do then at that time? Do you refer to the food that you used to eat when you grew up? Or do you decide to say, okay, I need maybe to go to my home country and tour around because I, I, I need really to learn, you know, from the roots and, you know, the different parts of Mexico in order to, to gather insights, you know, informations and, and come up with what you want to do. Yeah. So it's interesting you say that because I did exactly that. So after leaving Los Angeles, coming out here, I had always had my eye on it. There's a good friend out here and one of my mentors, Michael Fotage. He owns a restaurant here called Olame. And... I had always seen, saw what he was doing out here, and he had given me some consent of like, man, Austin is going to be the next city. Like, you wait, I'm telling you. I was like, what? Like, I don't want Austin out there. So I came out here one day, sight and seeing. I was like, yes, this is where I'm going to open a restaurant. It just felt right. Everything about it, 24 hours in Austin, just doing the whole Barton Springs, doing rainy street which i'll never go again but at that time i was like wow this place is awesome it's better rainy just, street than the sixth street but okay yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> for sure it's a, it's a little classier but yeah i mean just the whole experience the whole vibe of austin i just i knew it felt right but before i decided to pursue this journey i took a little trip to mexico i took six months starting I took a bus ride from here to monterrey mexico and started the journey there and it Went six months traveling all the way, little little by little, staying in different towns, Veracruz, San Luis Potosí, Guadalajara, Michoacán, different states. And then all the way down to the Yucatan was the final journey. So along the way, I knew if I wanted to open a taqueria, I mean, it started with the corn. The foundation was going to be a nixtamalized corn restaurant. So, I mean, 
at that point, I had no idea how to even make a tortilla. So I was like, dude, you better go learn. Like, if you're about to open a restaurant, like, you better go learn. So took took this leap of faith and it ended up being like one of the most eye-opening experiences that really like pulled me to my roots and like my culture and made me so just grateful and amazed by like everything I saw. Like, I just remember it was like a whole, like seeing Mexico through a whole new vision, especially being a chef now. Cause as when I used to go, we would go like every year being a kid, but like as a kid, like I didn't, I, you know, I didn't appreciate that and hated rice and beans and like all I wanted to eat were hamburgers. So yeah, <laughs> being a chef at that point, I was like, whoa, like just starting to see all these comparisons in terms of like different cuisines, how it kind of like bridged and just like all these new like flavors, all these new chilies, new corns, everything. And yeah, I just took all that in. So I want to hear from Rick this idea as well, when you made the decision to revisit like your roots and your heritage, Mexican heritage, what did you do? I mean, did you like went into like a, a trip to Mexico, you know, as well? And and I'm not even trying to get brownie points here, but it's when me and my wife got married in Cozumel in 2007. We were there for like eight or 10 days and I was working in a hotel at the time in San Antonio and the food was like continental, you know, it was just loved the place, loved everything about it. It was just, to me, uh, a little uninspiring and I knew I needed a change, right? So 2007, we're in Cozumel and spend so much time down there and start visiting Tulum before Tulum was really cool. So mm -hmm. Tulum was a jungle. And there was like two lanes and like 70,000 lizards. Now it's very different if you go to Tulum now. So going down there and eating cochinita pibil, the orange slow roasted pig, I, I read about it. I never had it. And I was like, oh, okay, we're going to get this. Eating that with habanero, black beans and their corn tortillas was like, it, it set it off. You're already sweating down there. And then you're eating this like pork and sweating with the habaneros, not even wearing shoes. It felt right. So at that point... It's 2007, right? We go to New York, we do that. When I come back, everything was geared to trying to get back into Mexican cuisine or the culture or just, just finding something to like get into. I didn't know what to do really. I, I didn't cook Mexican food. I just ate it. When I was working in New York, Rene Ortiz had this spot called La Esquina. La Esquina was right there on the corner of Kenmar and, and I forget the cross street, but it was in the corner. And he had tacos and you can never get into the place because it was very expensive or it was just always packed. So moved back to Austin, start working at a restaurant, and Renee's got a restaurant called La Condesa. It's the first restaurant I ever ate at when I came back to Austin. Ate the cochinita pibil, and I was like, this dude, who's this guy, man? So I tried to work with Renee as fast as possible. I don't think he talked to me for about two months, even the knocking on the door, calls, whatever. I really wanted to work for him in that space. Uh -huh. He finally let me in, and he made a good decision. <laughs> he made a good decision. He's doing other things. I'm still there. Yeah. The restaurant is still afloat. I mean, it's thriving and it's doing well. But that was a point in where I think it was 2010 I started. I, I started learning Mexican food. It was first embarrassing to, to tell my parents, oh, I've got a spot, you know, I've got a new job and I'll be at a Mexican restaurant. And my mom was like, oh, mijo, congratulations. And like pats on the back, but just kind of like, you know, it wasn't like <laughs> maybe full hearted or wholehearted, whatever it was. I just felt like, all oh, right, I'm going to show you. <laughs> I'm going to show you guys what's up. It's not all flour tortillas and fideos and, you know, caldo. I started learning on the job. That's straight up. My, I was so honest and open and vulnerable. I was like, you got to teach me everything. I've eaten mole. I've toasted chilies. 
you know, I've done a few salsas myself, but to really immerse yourself and understand what you're doing, you had to get into it. Mm -hmm. So I traveled to Mexico City. And this was about eight or nine years ago. And, you know, of course, my spots were Puyol and Quintonil. And we got to go to the spots where it's like fancy, which, you know, the team allowed me to do. I mean, we had some great food at those restaurants. And these are these are chefs that, you know, had inspirations that I had. And I, I was very lucky to work in a, in a group of Dianex with Daniel Balud and, you know, all those huge heads, just, man, just very smart people. But aside from the Puyol and the Quintonil, going to like your tacos where you're, or your street taco vendors and just talking to them, just straight up talking to them and asking them what their day is like. Everything in Mexico is done with love. They tell you this straight up. Everything we do is with love. It's not always good and delicious, but we love what we do and you're going to feel it. And, and I took that sentence right there and that emotion. And I was like, all right, I love what's going on here. And really immersing into what the smaller spots were doing, the taco spots, every torta that we had over there was just amazing. Everything aside from Puyo and Quintonil, which I thought to me was going to be my thing, what I needed to understand, everything away from that was the inspiration. And Mexico City is huge. So, you know, when you're traveling within different spots and going to the market and then coming back to, we, we always stay in Condesa when we go to Mexico, coming back to where your home base is, everything is different from how spicy you want things, how not spicy you want things, how deep you want things toasted, the huaraches, the quesadillas that we had just filled with the squash blossoms and cheese. And you could have like probably access to the different influence from different regions, correct? In absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And then even to the last time that we went, which is probably about three years ago, the chefs they were cooking in Mexico City were cooking with vibes from Oaxaca. So really deep, simple foods, simple preparations. And, and simple isn't always the easiest thing to do. I noticed that from the coffee, from the ice cream shops to the really fancy dinners that we were going to, everything was covered in mole or everything was straight, you know, corn or straight squash or whatever it was. It was very basic with like really strong intent. And you have to like really look back on what Mexico is and how the cuisine is kind of, I guess, reformed itself and how it was formed. It's never, ever going to stop. That's what's so cool and dynamic about what we do and, and the restaurants that we have. And when you eat tacos from wherever, east side to west side to downtown in Austin, they're all different, but equally as delicious. The things that, though, I haven't seen here yet is things that I love when I went to, you know, Mexico City many times is like the way how they cook and they, they use like insects, you know, in, in the cuisine. So I, I love grasshoppers and I love ant eggs, but I think there's still like a whole universe, you know, that hasn't been yet really discovered by the American, let's say, population. I think that's this world of insects is, is really, really interesting. Just I want to hear a little bit as well from Andre, which probably it's a different perspective here because obviously you are in charge of the food program in, you know, in the Fairmont in, here in Austin and the clientele is very diverse. So I'm, I'm curious about how do you, if we are focusing on, you know, what we are talking about today, which is, you know, Latino influence, how do you approach this? Knowing that as well, that your heritage is not as direct than compared to, you know, Rick and Edgar. So I'm, I'm curious about how you do, do you approach that, that aspect for, for the Fairmont? Where I grew up, so I grew up in El Paso, Texas, which is a border city. And for people that aren't familiar with El Paso, the, the food is, when you're in El Paso, it's kind of like New Orleans. You, you recognize the food. It's, it's not necessarily Mexican. It's not, you, you know, it's not Tex-Mex. It just has its own unique flavor. And there's a lot of 
really good cooks coming out of there and I, and I, because there is a strong food culture built around, built around food in El Paso. When I was growing up, and this is just to give you an example, in El Paso, when you order a bowl of menudo, which is, you know, very, very traditional Mexican soup in El Paso, you get it with a lot of hominy, uh, a very, very little bit of tripe, dry oregano shaken over the top and toasted bread. That's, that's the way that you get it. And that's the way I ate it growing up. And so later on in life, I moved to California and I was live, I was working in Southern California and I went to go eat and they gave me a menudo with cilantro and tortillas. I said, what is this nonsense? I, why is there tortillas with my, with my menudo? Where's the toasted bread? And everyone was looking at me like I was crazy. It's because I, I didn't understand Mexican food outside of my little bubble of what I thought Mexican food was. I was really introduced to Mexican food. And when I say Mexican food, I mean Mexican food, like in, in, you know, in Mexico, that type of cooking uh, through my mother-in-law. My wife is Mexican and her, her family is from, you know, the, the coast of Yucatan Peninsula. And so for the first time, she, she introduced me to tamales with banana leaves. And I was like, why, why is, where's the, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. That's not how you make tamales. There's supposed to be corn husks on there. And as she started introducing me to the food, you have to understand when you when you have a frame of reference of the way things should be, like French food or Italian food. If anyone does it differently than your mom or where you grew up, it's wrong, right? My mom made it this way, or my family makes it this way, or my town makes it this way. If you're making it different, you're making it wrong. And so here comes my wife's family introducing me to to new flavors. You know, cochinita pibil wrapped in a banana leaf, or tamales wrapped in banana leaf, or salsas that I've never heard of. Why is there ants in this dish? You know, back to your point, it started to make me more curious about Mexican food because I was wrapped up in this little bubble of what I thought Mexican food was, but. It was more specifically regional food based on the town of Juarez and El Paso, the, bo- the border right there. So it's very specific to that area. So how does that tie into here now? Well, the one thing that I, that I have to understand when it comes to this hotel is I want to deliver food that people could wrap their head around. So I, I never want to stray too far off in our areas where we serve Mexican food. So it's going to be a lot of you know more of the crowd favorites you know you're gonna you're gonna have a guacamole you're gonna have you know a a shrimp you're gonna have you know more of the simple tacos we're not gonna go too far off script because the clientele you know this is like introductory your introduction to mexican food however in some of the other areas where we take like give you garrison as an example when we opened up the restaurant we did uh, a braised beef shank that we served with a mole. Later on, an iteration was we did a an octopus with with green mole. So we started to incorporate some of those flavors, those Latin American flavors, those Mexican flavors. And started to put training wheels on it and introduce it, you know, in, in Garrison and some of the other restaurants. But I would say that the majority of my influence when it comes to Mexican food is is probably from El Paso. My mom, my my in laws, you know, who are who are from Mexico, and you know, I, I hope my mom's not listening because she, you know, sorry, mom, but she wasn't the greatest cook growing up, and so we, you know, my friends came over one day, and you know, I was really excited, you know, I'm a kid, like, oh, my mom made dinner, if it get you guys can't wait, um, and they start tasting and making faces, like, what is this? And I was like, what are you talking about? It's delicious. My mom's cooking. And so I, I go to culinary school years later. I understand food. I come back and I try her food. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> they were right. You know, it sunk in. And I was like, oh, she is a bad cook. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. I still love her food, though, because it's mom's food. So years later, here we are at the Fairmont and we're hosting an El Paso chef because there's several other chefs that are from El Paso that are that are very successful. And we all had to create dishes inspired by our home 
and by our family. So growing up, I used to make, I, I used to eat a pipian that my mom would make. So it's like a, think of it like a pumpkin seed, mole, green, saucy, spicy. And so I have this shredded chicken pipian and I served it with deliberately really overcooked rice because that's, that's how my mom would cook it. She'd not, not just cook the rice to the point where the grains explode, but cook it to the point where the grains explode and they're all stuck where you could, you know, lift, lift it up with a fork. But to me, that was what I understood, you know, my, that was my relationship to Mexican food because Mexican food is, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's a matriarchy, right? So mom's always in the kitchen cooking and that's the way that you, that, that's the way that you enjoy the food. So the connection to Mexican food for me is very personal. So I, very rarely cook Mexican food, but if I do cook Mexican food, it's going to be for someone that I love, you know, for my family or for very close friends, because it it is an emotional cuisine for me. So if I'm making Mexican food for you, it's it's because I care deeply for you, and it, and you're gonna you're gonna be able to taste it when it comes through. I'm just curious is that when it comes to techniques that you know you learn the French techniques, but when you started discovering like you know, the flavor of a Mexico, did you discover as well, like new techniques or things that you were not used to? Yeah, absolutely. We'll use a tomato, for example. And it was learning how to confit tomatoes in a French kitchen is very delicate and time consuming and you take care of it. And that will be for a dish, right? And then we treat the tomato like pure metal in the Mexican kitchen. We char it, we burn the heck out of it. We cook it only on one side to reduce it all down to its juices. And then we make, I mean, moles from that, sauces from that, marinades from that. So learning how to be very delicate in the French cuisine world, you know, in that technique driven industry to the technique of a Mexican restaurant was just night and day for me. I mean, literally, it was just like very different. Anything else beside like oh, yeah. cooking and yes. like, you know, working with fire, I guess? Working with fire. We have a, a post oak grill in the kitchen. So, you know, working with... I love right now, and the boys are going to see it more and more in the fall. It's it's very hard to burn your vegetables and still love them in the end. And what I mean by that is cooking in that in the ashes of the wood. And I talk about it all the time, but nobody there's like two people that care in the kitchen, and those are my chefs. And they I can always nerd out. It's it's the alkalinity within that ash that basically nixtamalizes your sweet potatoes, butternut squash, whatever you want, whatever you want. You can throw it into those ashes. And the trick to that is it's got to be the white ash. You can't have a wood that's on fire just burning and raging. It's got to be the ashes. You'll spread it out and we'll cook on there. And it takes a little bit. But what it, what it does is it encapsulates all the flavor into that vegetable. And then to me, you know, reduces it down to another type of viscosity. So we're doing a sweet potato puree on the menu soon. And we throw them in the fire and we bring it all the way down. And it's a little bit more tacky. And it's got all these little granules of like, you know, burn in there or char in there. That bitter... To counteract that is the most, I don't know, satisfying thing for me because to balance bitter on your palate, mm -hmm. it takes a little bit of salt, a little bit of acid, some sweetness, but not too much of either yeah. because you still want some of that bitter to kind of like keep your mouth going. Mm -hmm. It's like a Szechuan pepper in your Asian cuisines. You're just sweating and you're like, man, I got to keep eating this even though I'm on fire. Same thing with that bitter. People don't ever know what it is. This puree specifically will go into a salad with, you know, greens and pickle red onions. It's very simple, but the puree is the star of the dish. And nobody will know that until you hear our staff tell you that because you're going to look at the salad and be like, great, okay, I could have yeah. gone to X, you know. But when you get into that puree and you hear the story, you're just like, well, great. Lots of words come out of your mouth that you'd never said before in front of your parents. And you're just like, how do we get to that point? That, that style of cooking with fire and then that technique right there, 
makes me feel like um like I'm growing up, you know, living in South Texas again in that North Mexican region. Campfires, things like that, the the smoke and the ash all over yourself when you get back home. And then I guess the last technique is just ceviche. We I think we have a really good ceviche program at, in in the restaurant and we do a lot of squeezing of fresh limes on the ceviches, which is not anybody's favorite, but we don't have bottles of lime juice all the time. And if you squeeze too much of that lime, you get too much of that bitter and too much of that pith and it ruins a dish. Is it like ceviche or terradito or like what? All of it. Ceviche, of it. Okay. tiraditos, chifas, nike, okay. whatever it is. Sure. I, I love crudos. So a little bit of Japanese influence there. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I worked under some Japanese chefs and they taught me great techniques. But, you know, learning how to balance everything with acid onto that raw piece of fish takes so much care. Okay. Anything else like when it comes to... Um, you know, with the fire and grilling and so, because I've, you know, like, like leveraging maybe like a little bit of the Maya reaction. You absolutely. Know? Absolutely. You know, when we, when we grill our steaks, you know, that's, that's speaking along the lines of two of who our cooks are and who we have in the kitchen. We're teaching these guys new techniques. And when we cook on the fire, I don't want like the grill marks or the little diamond marks. It means nothing to me. Mm -hmm. If you're taking care of that steak and watching it all the way through, you're building a crust on it and you're moving it a lot. So you, you have to definitely pay attention to what you're grilling, but you're not grilling over an open flame. This flame is not touching the meat itself. It's hot enough on the grill. You have a super hot spot right there and it's not very big normally. It's about the size of a basketball. So imagine getting seven or eight steaks in at once. You have to take care of what's going on because everything we want off of that grill, it needs to be crusty. It needs to have flavor. It needs to have some kind of reaction, the mild reaction like we're talking about. So it doesn't always mean just grilling for 30 seconds, quarter turn, 30 seconds, flip it over. That doesn't build any flavor. And, and we've showed that too to the staff. Like this does nothing. It, it tastes like fire. You know what I mean? It doesn't taste enticing or beautiful or sexy or anything. But when you get the crust and you've reduced all that you can out of that steak and cook the salt and cook the pepper on there, it, it's something different that you can't explain. You know, and you even hear the sound when your knife hits it too. So Yeah, we talk about it all the time, every single day in the kitchen, actually, because to start a fire is not the same every single day sometimes. Edgar, nixtamilization. Tell us a little bit about what's behind this big word. Yeah, so nixtamilization, essentially, it sounds like a big fancy word, but what it is, is essentially you're taking dried corn and you there's two different ways you can cook it. One of them is like Rick was saying earlier, you can use ash to cook it. I have never personally cooked with ash, but I've seen it done before. I know that the ratio, there's different ratios that you use. I know when you're using a lot, when you're using ash, you're using a lot more as opposed to when you're using the traditional thing that you'd use, which is cal. When you're using cal, like with us at the restaurant, that's... So what is cal? Cal is essentially limestone. It comes from the earth. It's naturally found throughout the earth and natural process but now there are some companies that are scientifically making it because i guess this explosion in nixtamalization that's happening throughout the world but essentially what is happening is you are taking corn in dried state you boil it in this liquid solution for generally about 30 to 45 minutes depending on your corn we do 35 minutes at the restaurant but you're cooking it till i was told the cooks is that it's a medium rare essentially on the corn like it should still should bite into it but it should still be a little raw in the middle because it's going to sit in that liquid overnight so generally about 10 to 12 hours it sits in that liquid and what's happening during that process is the natural starches and gelatins are being derived from the corn and it's expanding in size too so a little corn kernel that's maybe the size half the size of a penny will expand to almost maybe the size of a quarter, if 
not a little bit bigger, just depending on your corn. Every corn is different. So some corns are really tiny, some are a little bit bigger. But at that point, once your corn has nixed and lies overnight, the next day you are rinsing it and then you were running it through a machine that is called a Molino. And essentially this machine has two humongous volcanic stones that grind up against each other and it grinds it and from it comes fresh masa. And that is essentially the base for your tortillas. And at that point you can start shaping them and then boom, you have tortillas. So in a nutshell, that is what nixtamalization is. So when you learn it the first time we went to Mexico, I'm guessing this is, you told me the story about this the lady. little lady on the side of the road. Yeah. She didn't have this engine. She was doing that by hand, With the metate, right? yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the first time I ever saw it was when on the journey on the bus ride along New Mexico to Monterrey. Mm -hmm. I remember we had a little stopover and it was like you had a bathroom break and <laughs> I remember I saw there was a lady in a little shack, literally a shack. She was cooking on a traditional comal with a wood fire going underneath. And I was just like fascinated by this lady. And I was like, oh my what God, is she doing? what is she doing? Like, this smells delicious. And I see a, a bucket of masa just right there. And I go and talk to her and I'm like, are you making tortillas? And she's like, yes. <laughs> I was like, what does it look like I'm doing? And I'm like, oh, okay. Start talking with her, eat one of her tortillas. And, and just so blown away by these tortillas that I decided to get off the bus and I was like, I'm, I want to learn how you do this. She was like, come back the next morning at 5 a.m. And I'll, I'll show teach you. you. <laughs> and I was like. See, it's very uh, important. Uh, Bathroom breaks can lead <laughs> to a lot of good things. Yeah. <laughs> so find a little sh shack of a hotel room that was three two dollars a night it was just a room i wouldn't even call it a hotel but came back to learn from this lady i was like i want to know like everything you do like from the cooking to like shaping and i saw her just she was like all right i'm gonna take you under my wing and just kind of just watch what i do for a day and just watching her the way she moved it was like there was with her it was not the scientific thing where she, she was just adding color sure. I was like, she was not measuring you, yeah, yeah like well how much are you putting in like yeah. she's like i don't i just i've been doing the this for I so long it. yeah she's <laughs> like exactly. i just feel this yeah but from a completely contrast different experience i also was fortunate enough to go to puyol and work there and seeing the way they did tortillas was this scientific process that was so detailed to the T in terms of grams, to weight, to timing, everything was just like, compared to the style with her, with Doña Margarita, that was just so just laissez-faire, kind of just off the cuff. It just, she just knew what felt right. Like she didn't, there was no timers for anything she did. She was just tasting the corn throughout it. Sure. Like as she's making the masa, she was with the metate, like adding a little bit of water, little splashes here and there until it got right to where she wanted it. So just seeing those contrasting styles of how to make a tortilla, it's not to say either one is wrong. I mean, her tortilla still to this day, and it's probably because it was the first one I ever had, was the best tortilla I ever had in my life. Like she didn't even have a machine either too. That was the amazing part. Like she was shaping these things, like clapping her hands. I want to go back to, to mole, you know, that you started talking about first. And then I'm just curious about 
like what kind of mole do you you guys you know use in your in your cooking yeah so we we currently have two on our menu and we have the traditional one so that's the mole negro and that's the one that we we call it the three-day mole because it takes three days to gather it like but 50 ingredients probably something like this it's like 33 ingredients 33. Okay. and and we say it takes three days to gather but it's really just one and i'm winking right now we just have to work really fast to gather everything <laughs> i was like we can do this in one the pandemic really shined a light on what we can do and can't do so we still say three-day mole but if you if you hustle you can get it done and you know th that's the one that you know maybe like as the chef sitting at the table here the one that we tasted when we were younger it had the chocolate and it had sure. those notes of like you the know, cacao probably the, the cacao yeah, yeah, and maybe there's something bitter and you know i did not like it when i was a kid i just didn't understand it it's very complex it was on my chicken it was all over my chicken and my rice and i was like this is wrong but you know you you grow and your palate expands and you learn all these different techniques and you really really are grateful for understanding of what the complexity is there's a lot of toasting and roasting and charring and burning and cooking lightly and it never boils and you got to stir it and then we buzz it and then we you know as we buzz it we save some of that that we push when through when you say you buzz it what does that uh, mean a vitamix sorry i was getting really excited okay. uh, we put it in a vitamix and it starts to like blitz up nicely and you know, we, we do the thing where French chefs taught me to pass it through a, a China cap and then a chinois. It's not clean or fun, but we keep some of those guts that doesn't pass through and then we'll turn that into a little powder just for, for fun. You know, we're not going to throw anything away because it took a long time. It took us three days together, remember? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have that one and that's the one that for us and, and with allergens and what people are, you know, have aversions to now, there's sesame and, and walnut and almond and, and things that are like, you know, stars on a menu where that's an allergen and then we go the other route where we have this black bean mole and the base for that is black beans so you can eat it you can there's no seeds there's no chocolate you know both moles don't have any gluten to it but this black bean mole is, is is spicy and fiery and it's got all these grilled vegetables like tomatoes and jalapenos and garlic that's been toasted a little too much where it's got that that bitter note again but these black beans is is the base of it. What kind of black beans do you use? We just use regular black beans that we got. We use them from Rancho Gordo specifically. So like these turtle beans, you know, okay. just a, a generic black bean. And we cook those down and then we add a sofrito to it. So it's got peppers. So we use red bell peppers, tomatoes, garlic, onion. Everything's okay, right? No seeds or anything yet. And then we take that. Everything gets added into our mole. Pasilla, morita, a little bit of uh, chile de arbol. And those three are the, the dynamic ones right there. We used to have many others that we put in there, but we've pared down our larder in the kitchen lately. So those three chilies right there, even on the plate, on a white plate, those two moles you can tell are different from each other. The mole negro is very thick and viscous. And, you know, when you look at it first, it doesn't have this like hue or ring around it. The black bean mole does because there's a little bit more fat in it because of that sofrito, you know, all the oil that binds it right there. So there's like a little bit of an oil, like a, like a really fiery orange around it. So I can tell, the cooks can tell, we've gone over the education before, the diner won't be able to tell. And they never trust when they hear about the mole. No, I don't like that one. That's the one with the chocolate and it's gotten, well, check it out. No, and we're gonna let you taste it now. And people, here's the funny part, as much as people love mole and they think they really have a keen grasp on it, they like the black bean mole more. Cause it's not traditional by any means. It's kind of made up, you know what I mean? It's kind of just like, we gotta get some black beans moving we made too many quarts we go from here and no allergens that was and, and as well. no allergens yeah. and so, then the okay. chocolate factor too sure. and the seeds and all that so when you eat that it stings a little bit more it doesn't have that round like 
you know, plantain macho, like the fried plantains that are in the mole negro and that mm-hmm, chocolate, mm-hmm. this black bean pasilla mole kind of kicks. Okay. You know, so I, I can go off those two right there, but we've done many other in the house. I just, I love the contrast between talking about the, the pollo and mole with this mole negro. And then we do a confit short rib with this mm. pasilla black bean mole. And it's, it's great. Both are really great. I just think it's fun with contrast they both offer to each other. Edgar, any, any other mole that you want to share with us? Yeah, so for myself, we do not serve mole at the restaurant. We do have a variety of specials constantly that are rotating. And sometimes there is mole on there. But a mole in particular that kind of fascinated me was one, my sous chef. Her name is Sara. She's from Guanajuato, Mexico. And one day she just threw out this idea. She's like, hey, let's make a, a mole rosa. And I was like, what? I was like, a mole rosa, like a pink mole. And she's like, yeah, that's something like my mom always used to cook for us on our birthdays. And immediately fascinated by this, I was like, tell me more. Like, how, how do you make this? What do you do? I've never in my travels, never have I ever heard of a mole rosa. So, and we start getting into it. Essentially, the base is very similar to like a mole blanco. So there's like pine nuts in there, sesame in there onions, all that stuff is kind of a bunch of spices, all that's kind of fried. But what gives it that like pink hue is there's beets in it. So that's what gives it really? the, yeah. So it's, this ends up being like this kind of spicy, earthy sauce. And with the beets too, it gives it that like depth. So eating that, I was, you know, like you say, there's mole, there's hundreds of different kinds of moles sure, from sure. all around Mexico. So to see one that I guess I had never even heard of or knew about, like that was just so fascinating for me. And yeah, eating that was just, it was, wow. It just like changed everything of what okay. I thought a mole could be. And it was so simple too. It was like literally like 12 ingredients. So definitely one of those, like not that long list, like sure. you typically see in like a negro, which is like 40, 30 plus ingredients, you know? So yeah. yeah. Andre, you were mentioning before that, uh, you know, in this octopus that I tasted at the garrison, it's a fantastic dish. You have mole verde there. So what, what do you put in this uh, mole verde? By the way, I might get beat up after I say what I'm about to say. Uh, there, there was a little bit of fish sauce in the bowl. And so, you know, when I, when I think about Mexican food, you know, the mole verde is like a pumpkin seed based mole, right? So different chilies, pumpkin seed, tomatillos, things like that. But when we were looking to add layers of flavor to the mole and, you know, we experiment a lot with the Asian, Asian techniques, Asian ingredients, fish sauce to me, you know, it's not something that you, you see in, 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 in Mexican cooking. However, the chef de cuisine at the time in Garrison, he was experimenting with like, Hey, what do you think of this mole? And I try, I said, yeah, it's great. What, what, what's that? lingering flavors like a little bit of fish sauce you know my first uh, reaction was how dare you you know how dare you ruin my heritage but it worked right and here's what i've discovered recently w- with regards to mole so lately you know of course you know there's the moles that we talked about but there's another mole that's that that i've really started to enjoy lately it's this mole manchamanteles which has fruit in it and it has pineapples in it depending on where you're where you're coming from you know it's more red than your really dark mole negro and i've i've I, at first, I thought, you know, I don't want, I don't want a fruit salad in my mole. But the more I ate it, I was like, this is super delicious. I'm really enjoying it. Again, recently, I came across this other mole, which to me, it took me a minute. It was almost as much of, uh, you know, cognitive dissonance as it was when I tried fish sauce in mole. And it was this green mole, and it was made with, we made it with almonds and tomatillos, and then they added burnt tortilla. So you, you basically you you char the tortilla until it's basically ash. And you, you, you put that when you puree the, the mole, so that, that ash adds flavor. 
but then we added capers and then we added olives and then you added cilantro and parsley at the end. And I was like, this is not what mole should be. And you added shrimp to it. And I was like, how is this a traditional mole? But it is. And, you know, the reason I bring that up is because what we ended up was with this green mole, which has, you know, very almost almost French characteristics to it or Mediterranean characteristics with the olives and the capers. And they add a little bit of the caper juice to add some brininess to it. I was like, this to me is not mole. But it is mole. It is a traditional mole from Mexico. And it, and it goes back to the, the point earlier of there are so many varieties of moles. And the more I learn about Mexican food, the more I realize I don't know anything about Mexican food. Uh, because what my preconceived uh, notion of Mexican food on what I grew up with, you know, the deeper you go into Mexico, the, you know, it's, they, they cooked with what, what, what is around. So granted, if you're in a, in a tropical area, your mole might look much different than, than if you're in a less tropical area. I would say that right now in the United States, I, th- I think we kind of have this default mode when we think of mole. It's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's the dark brown mole. Maybe it's Doña Maria in a glass jar, which by the way, those glass jars in most, most Hispanic households is like the glass, the glasses that are in everyone's house. That's the cupboard glass. It's, it's, it's very true, by the way. You always reuse the glass jar. You don't throw it away. You wash it and that becomes your drinking glass at home. But everyone's used to this this certain type of dark mole. But the more you start exploring in Mexican cuisine, you start to realize that, you know, I don't know if they're making it up as they go, but it's really boundless when it comes to what we think of as mole. And, and the, the more I understand, it's like, I never thought that that would be a mole. So going back to the fish sauce, now I'm thinking, you know, maybe, maybe it's not so taboo to have some fish sauce in, in the mole. I, I think... The great thing about mole is, as you alluded to earlier at the beginning of the podcast, is, you know, it means sauce, right? So, to have that spirit of Mexican cooking when you're making a sauce, as, as long as you hold true and you're cooking with, you know, with love and heart and passion, I think, you know, all of a sudden, yes, there is tradition, but, you know, as, as we're introducing Mexican food, I think we're able to break the boundaries a little bit. So, in talking about, like, the glass, you know, that you mentioned, and we have, like, the same story in France when I was younger. We were collecting like the the jar from like the Dijon mustard, and they were at that time with and now they changed, but so they was like you know in a glass with kind of a, a red cover that you, plastic things that you could take off, and then you you will you know keep like those jars as you know glasses you know that you will you know drink from. So so similar similar story. <laughs> You had to mentioning adding fish sauce, you know, in the mole. And I remember when I was at, you know, your restaurant that you are adding as well some Asian twists, you know. So can you talk to us a little bit, uh, you know, about this? Yes, some Korean flair and, you know, some other stuff. With us, we definitely like to take some little cues and flavors from all around the world. So um, in one of the salsas that we use, we actually use fish sauce as well. And our salsa, we use some fish sauce in there well because it just gives it like this really nice zing and kind of umami that it's kind of unexpected. And also too, some other things we'll use like on our tuna tostada, we use Japanese furikake. So furikake is just a blend of sesame seeds with nori and dried egg yolks. And then there's a little bit of sugar in there as well. So it just, it's an umami bomb and just kind of adds texture to a dish really nicely. I mean, there's definitely some soy sauce in there. Like today we are doing a special, it's a chicken karage with house-made Napa kimchi on top. So yeah, I mean, for myself growing up on the West Coast, being in, in, uh, in California, I mean, there's a huge Asian population out there. I mean, growing up in the area where I was at, there was definitely a huge like Laotian and Japanese cultures around that. And then all throughout California as well. So 
I mean, that was something flavors, I guess I was kind of always used to as a kid. And one of my best friends too, he was Japanese. So I just remember going to like his house as well and trying to learn about their culture. Mm-hmm. So it's always been kind of, I guess, part of my upbringing, like a lot of Asian culture just because of yeah. where I and, grew up. And I guess like, you know, younger, younger generation, like, um, you know, millennials, younger millennial Gen Z, as we call them now, they are, they are really looking for that type of stuff. They, they, you know, I'm sure they are lining up to taste your tacos with the, the twists. I'm going to switch to the uh, rapid fire question. So whoever wants to, what is the food smell that reminds you of your childhood? For me, it's mole. You were you were talking earlier. Every every Sunday at my grandmother's house, there was always mole being cooked. So for me, Sundays smell like mole or menudo. But those are the two smells that I think about food memories. This is Edgar, and for myself, it is a. It's actually a cheese. It's a cheese that we now use at the restaurant. It's called queso anejo enchilado. It is a uh, dry rubbed cheese that's rubbed down with cow's milk cheese. That's rubbed down with guajillo and fermented and aged for about two to three years. The smell on it is the most god-awful smell on earth, and I hated everything about it as a kid. And I remember every time my parents would crack open this thing, I would be so embarrassed if I ever had friends over because I'd be like, God, how that smells. This thing must be terrible. And like, I did not like anything about that cheese. But trying it as I grew up to be an adult, it ended up being this cheese that just changed my life it and to now be able to be serving this cheese on the menu at the restaurant it just makes me really proud but yeah that smell of that cheese it is a topping that we always put on top of the enchilada potosinas that we would make that's a dish that's regional from where i'm from in mexico san luis potosi the state but yeah this cheese is sold we would always smuggle it back growing up as a kid. That's the cheese we would always bring back. We'd bring back bricks of it. And yeah. So yeah, queso anejo enchilado is that smell of my childhood. Yeah, childhood smells for me. Oh man, don't laugh at me, guys. Cumin and onions. Cominos con cebollas. That was the cue of somebody's about to cook some Mexican rice. Beside the classics, what condiment spice sauces do you like to have at hand at home? This is Rick and mustard, any kind of mustard. We have yellow at the house. We have Dijon at the house. We have stone ground at the house. We have some spicy mustard from somebody local that's in the pantry right now. So that's for everything. We like like tangy, spicy things. For me, I would say it's hot sauce. I have varieties and copious amounts of hot sauce. Right now, currently in the fridge, we definitely got some truff in there. Yucateca, because I love the heat. And then some other varieties, like there's probably like over 40 in my fridge. So it's always getting lost somewhere throughout. This is Andre. What I have right now, probably a lot of is Asian condiments. So I have, you know, hoisin sauce, oyster sauce, gojujang, just some MSG in my pantry, bonito flakes, just whatever I can. I I love to, if I could incorporate some some Asian flavors in what I'm cooking at home, it, it comes in handy. What is the most important aspect of being a chef? For me, the best thing I think is just being able to share, make experiences and memories for people. I mean, that is why you go into a restaurant, at least in my eyes, like it's going to go, whether it's a birthday, whether you're celebrating or you just want to hang out with a friend, like when you're sharing a meal together, like you're creating a memory. And if that meal can be extraordinary as well, it's just icing on the cake. So 
yeah, just making really amazing memories and experiences for people. This is Rick. And for me, it's patience and understanding. Being patient with your staff and understanding with them will help everything fall into place. In this industry, you teach young people how to be great. Not all of them are willing to accept the challenges, but as you move forward with this team, really cool things happen. So those two things right there. For me, I would say it's, it's developing other chefs, helping them grow, helping them become better versions of who they were yesterday and, and hopefully seeing them go on and, and be successful themselves. That's probably you know, what motivates me the most. What was like a worst advice that someone has given to you? Real quick though, uh, this is Rick again. I think the worst advice was lead line cook that I worked under and he told me I always had to be the best cook anywhere I went. And as I grew up in this industry, I had chefs tell me that we're going back to the mentor thing. We, you had to be the best aid you can be for your next person. So if that was maybe sometimes not being the best cook, you didn't always have to be the best cook. So when he told me I had to be the best cook, it was just, I, I don't think that was good mm-hmm. for me to, to be, you know, helpful to others. Really, when it comes to bad advice, I usually dismiss it. If it's bad advice, I, I, I don't really pay it much attention and I, and I keep going. Here's maybe not some bad advice, but you, you see this in kitchens and uh, it's the unspoken bad advice that, that you see uh, for cooks. So this is more of good advice to correct some bad behaviors for young chefs in the kitchen. You're still going to reward the hardest working person that cooks really well, that shows up early. And a lot of times, I, I, maybe even more so right now, people might think that that the path of least resistance is the, is the quickest way to success. And, and it's not the case. And I don't know if it ever has been. So I would say those people that say, ah, you know, don't, don't listen to, to the chef and go home early or come in later. It's okay to call off. In this business, we rely every single day on the performance and the performance of that in, individual. So I would say, you know, be contrary to that advice or be contrary to the to what you're seeing in the kitchen of for those poor performers because that's not the road to success. If there's a bad habit you would like to get rid of. I feel like within kitchens, I mean, I feel like this machismo kind of attitude I feel like in kitchens. I feel like when I was coming up in early on it was like who was like the toughest cook who could have the most cuts and like fucking he would just like sear it on the plancha just because he didn't want to go get stitches like i mean i think there's starting to see this change in guard of like people actually taking care of themselves and no longer like it's not this crazy like i feel like sex drugs and rock and roll kind of mentality that i feel like was early on in the in the industry, you're starting to see like this more of this wellness now of people like chefs actually taking care of themselves. And so they're starting to see this good, I feel like transition for the industry for the better of people taking care of themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. This is Rick. I think, um, going off those lines too, you know, my, my father would always tell us to enjoy what you can because it's not always going to be there. So he would always say it's not a race. This is the same man that told me before my triathlon one year that it's not a race to take my time. I was like, well, (laughs) technically this is a race and I'm going to finish at some point. But talking with your team along those lines and, you know, using the cliche of enjoying the process, but enjoying what you have now is very, very important. Because as young cooks, you only have one station and you have to do really well at that. But as you get bigger and you grow in this industry and you help others, people will notice that. And if you don't enjoy these moments now of the growth and like all the hurt and, and, 
you know, really trying to be good for yourself and for the kitchen people that you have around you, it would be all for naught. So I think um, slowing down now for me, maybe I wish I would have been more into the process back then, but I tell everybody to enjoy what they have now. Soak it in, take a breath. Here we are. Let's move forward for the service. She's really just enjoying your time because it goes very quickly. What is it? The, uh, the days are long, but the years are short. It's that whole thing right there. This is Andre. I, I would say one thing that I, I need to work on as a chef, and this is just how I operate in the kitchen, is I think I take for granted what I know and I assume everyone else knows what I know. When I give directions to people, I'm like, just do this. And I might skip four or five steps in the process and just say, just do this. And then they leave there and they, they don't ask the question because they don't know and they're too embarrassed to ask. And in my mind, you know everything I know, because if you didn't, you would ask me. But if you don't ask me, I, I assume you know. And I, and I think sometimes it's important for me to just stop and understand that like, okay, you're still in culinary school or you only have one year of experience. When I go and tell you this complicated cooking process, you just, you just might not understand. So I need to do a better job. And this is a bad habit that I have. I need to do a better job at just stopping and making sure that when I explain something to someone, that they're grasping what I'm saying and that I'm not just, you know, they're just saying, yes, chef, because that's what they're, they're trained to say. Okay. On the lighter side of the question, what is favorite guilty pleasure food? Mine is, and I know this sounds terrible and embarrassing, but uh, Jack in the Box taco. I love tacos. I eat, sleep, and breathe tacos. And even the shittiest dollar monster taco from Jack in the Box is my guilty pleasure at 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. This is Rick, and my guilty pleasure is uh, Doritos nacho cheese flavor. I've been off for two days, and I've eaten one and a half bags of Doritos nacho cheese. <laughs> I just love it. It's just good. And now my daughters love them too, so that's perfect. This is Andre. By the way, mine was the same as Rick's, I think, last time that, that, you, an that, that you answered. Or, I'm sorry, last time that you asked me. I would say, and, and by the way, I catch a lot of flack for what I'm going to say next. Is I, I Actually, I, I like McDonald's. I love McDonald's, actually. And I love a quarter pounder with cheese, with, and I love their french fries. They're delicious. Okay. And it's like, okay, it's my day off. It's my cheat day. My kids are going to be like, what do you want? I was like, I want McDonald's. They're like, come on, really? Is that what you want, Dad? You're a chef. I was like, yeah, I'm tired of eating all this nice food. I just want a, I just want a, a hamburger that's consistent. I know what it's going to taste like. I, I know how bad it's going to be. I'm not sitting here and saying McDonald's has the best burger because I know it's terrible, but I like it. One answer from each of you here. What is like the cookbook that inspired you the most, you know, in your career? And it cannot be like the French Laundry cookbooks because I've heard that one like a hundred times. So you have to say something else. <laughs> So th this is Andre, and I would say currently the cookbook that impressed me the most, and I could, I could talk about it at length, is The French Laundry Per Se. The new, the new version of uh, The French Laundry Cookbook, the updated version of, of that, you know, I don't know, 20, 25 years later, or whatever it may be. And, you know, so this book is now written by, you know, Chef Thomas Keller, David Breeden, Corey. And it's interesting because a lot of the book went back and revised some of the things that they talked about in the original book, I want to say they talked about, you know, ruse and liaisons and, and you know, big pot blanching and how they've updated the process to fish brining. So, I mean, it's a, it's a really well done book, revising some of the things that they spoke about earlier and updating it and making it current to, you know, you know to, the, to the current era of cooks. This is Rick. And the, the current cookbook that I have now that I've referenced a lot is the Jelena cookbook, which is a restaurant in Los Angeles. Yep. Smart, direct. Nothing tricky about it. And I, and I love how they touch on why sauces are what they need to be in the restaurant because of the business aspect for everything behind it. But everything is streamlined, but still really delicious for everybody that comes into the restaurant. So that book right there is just, I mean, I want to go eat at that restaurant tomorrow. I haven't been. I think it's just smartly done and it's really a sign of the times. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really good book. 
This is Edgar. So for myself, I guess the current cookbook that most recently read was actually the Raleigh, the Raleigh cookbook. It's a restaurant from Copenhagen and one of the chefs that we have that works for us, he staged there and he brought me back the book and started reading it and was just fascinated by it. There's a whole chapter on water, <laughs> like the reading about that, of how they approach the recipes. It's not really like a traditional cookbook. It kind of, it's more like storytelling and kind of just the reasons why these things work and just, just that whole chapter on water i was just fascinated by that made me want to buy now a water pure water what do they call it softener just to make better water because <laughs> okay. it all matters it's sure. the one thing we use every day in the kitchen that you wouldn't even think about but yeah water it's a big deal okay chefs thank you so much for your time i really you know appreciate like the conversation so for everyone, when you come to Austin, you have to come to La Condesa and, you know, meet Chef Rick. And then you have to go to to meet with Chef Edgar. And then obviously you have to stay at the Fairmont and then dine at Garrison and review and then go to the bar on the seventh floor and meet with Chef Andre. So again, thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. I hope you had a good time listening to this conversation with the three chefs in Austin with a Hispanic heritage. You can find the show notes of these episodes and all the other episodes on the website flavorsunknown.com. Please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts as you do not want to miss any upcoming episodes. If you are on Instagram or Facebook, you can follow us at flavorsunknown. Next week, my guest will be Chef François Payard from New York. Don't miss this episode with one of the most recognized pastry chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.